She had lost everything. Her family, her homeland, her freedom, even her name. The historians who wrote the book of Second Kings gave her a one-sentence description. On one of their raids, the Arameans captured a young woman from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Naara, that's the Hebrew word for young woman, so that's what I'm going to call her, Nara. That was all that was left of her identity, a slave girl to the wife of a powerful general. Nara had no people, no future, no power, and yet she forced her way into a biblical speaking part with one thing, faith. One day, Nara said to her mistress, if only Naaman would see the prophet who was in Samaria, her homeland, he would cure Naaman's leprosy. Oh yeah, Naaman had a fatal skin disease. This was the commanding general of the army of the nation of Aram. Powerful, disciplined, stellar reputation. His name, Naaman, even means pleasant and lovely. It's hard to be humble with that name and that kind of influence. But Naaman had leprosy, a deadly and disfiguring skin disease. Leprosy would kill him slowly and humiliate him and isolate him along the way. There was no cure, and so, in spite of all his power, Naaman was going to be brought down. He had no hope. That's quite the contrast presented by the storytellers. We have Naaman, the lovely man with power and ego, but no hope. And we have Nara, the slave girl with nothing but hope and faith. It's not surprising that the writers quickly move on to tell the rest of Naaman's story. You can read it for yourself in 2 Kings chapter 5. The short version is that Naaman was desperate enough to try Nara's suggestion, desperate enough to follow the prophet Elisha's instructions to wash in the dirty Jordan River and be healed. And he was healed and humbled. That's a story I grew up being amazed at. Today, though, I'm more interested in Nara, because to me it's even more amazing that she had hope and faith in her situation. Again, she had literally everything taken from her. At a young age, Nara was captured by an invading army, stolen as plunder from a decimated village. I don't even want to imagine the horrors of that experience. She was carried off to a foreign capital hundreds of miles away, no chance of escape or rescue. She was made the slave in the house of the leader of the troops that kidnapped her. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Ancient practices of slavery varied greatly. But even in the best case scenario, Nara had none of the things we value. No freedom, no security, no agency, no control. What is humanity without those things? In these pandemic days, I've been greatly affected by even the partial loss of those things. So it's amazing to me that out of that place of total powerlessness, Nara has the faith to suggest that her master might want to seek help from her God for his condition. You know, the same God who let me be defeated, who let me be kidnapped, the same God who is clearly not rescuing me from slavery, yeah, you should definitely ask that God for help with your situation. But that's what Nara says, apparently without a trace of sarcasm. From all outward appearances, Nara has no reason for faith in anything. And yet, there it is. When I started reading Nara's story this week, 
The quote from Jesus that came to mind is this. The truth is, unless you change and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who make themselves as humble as this child are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Faith like a child, that's how the phrase is often said. There are lots of interpretations around what it means to be childlike in our faith. Children are curious, innocent, full of wonder, and quick to trust, sometimes too much so. Naivete is viewed as such a negative in our reason-based world. But in children, naivete is both natural and purposeful. Of course children lack the wisdom of experience and judgment. They're kind of new here. And that lack of understanding drives them to learn and grow. They want to know everything, which is amazing and exhausting. The trouble with naivete comes when it does not recognize its own lack of knowledge and proceeds as though it knows what it does not Naivete that ignores facts, rejects self-examination, and is unwilling to learn is unhealthy. Anyway, when I was looking at Nara's story, my first thought was that her faith was naive. Here she is, believing in the healing power of this prophet Elisha, even though the prophet and his God had done nothing to protect her or fix her situation. Maybe that's what it was, this kind of blind faith that doesn't make those connections and relies on magical thinking for assurance that everything is going to turn out okay. We don't really know how old Nara was. Could be that she was a little kid, where that kind of faith is perfectly natural. It's odd, though, that her masters would have risked so much to follow up on the faith of a child, slave child. I mean, I see a lot of goodness in my kid's belief in Santa, but I still buy a few presents myself just in case the old guy doesn't show up on Christmas Eve. Again, Naara is the word for young girl, which is a broad term also used to describe young married women like Ruth and Esther. I think it's most likely that Nara was in her mid to late teens. Young, but in that society fully functional and old enough to know some things, especially given what she'd been through. So I don't think her story is about naivete or blind faith. There was something about her that made her masters take her faith seriously. It's worth noting that the actual instruction from Jesus in Matthew 18 is for his followers to make themselves as humble as this child. Humility is the key to faith, Jesus is saying. All the Mennonites watching are nodding vigorously on the inside, of course. Mennonites have a reputation for being humble, a fact that we are quite proud of. It seems to me that there are two layers of humility. The first is about comparison. Humility is not thinking of yourself as better than anyone else. Putting others ahead of yourself, not taking yourself too seriously, self-deprecation, being polite and deferential. Blessed are the meek. That's humility. I think there's also another level, the humility of self-awareness, of seeing your situation as it truly is, recognizing your own deficiencies, not in comparison to anyone else, but in general. There's so much that I don't know and don't understand about the world. I have so many physical limitations. There is so much that I can't control. Recognizing that is humility. Recognizing that naivete isn't just for children and those people who disagree with me. Everyone is woefully naive and idealistic about some things. I'd say we all know that on a much deeper level now than we did two months ago, hey? From that place, Jesus said, the place of not knowing, of being aware of our not knowing, the place of vulnerability, that's where faith is really possible.
I think that's the experience of Nara. All that she'd been through had stripped away any pretense of control. She knew uncertainty. She knew disappointment. She knew trauma. She was not where she wanted to be. And yet somehow she found something meaningful about her life. Not on the other side of suffering, but in the middle of it. There was purpose, faith, and hope. I read an article this week from columnist Oliver Berkman in The Guardian. He writes this. Zen master Roshi G.U. Kennett used to say that her philosophy when it came to teaching students wasn't to try to lighten the burdens they carried through life, but to make those burdens so heavy they'd choose to put them down. I had a friend a long time ago whose family was going through some really difficult things. And one family member just refused to let anyone in to help them, he just kept his head down and pushing through. Someone said to him, it's too much, you have to get some help. You can't keep pushing and hiding like this for the rest of your life. Just watch me, was his response. Just watch me. That is so many of us. We believe that we can fix anything. We can carry anything. We can endure anything. Yes, we can. Until we can't. Until our defenses fail, our enemies are too strong, our health is threatened, the losses keep piling up. And then when it all starts to break, we have a choice. Markman's article continues, most of us subliminally spend our days scrambling to get to a point where we feel like life's finally in working order and everything's under control, which for you might mean total financial security, becoming the perfect parent, leaving your childhood traumas entirely behind or anything else. The burden-lightening approach, as preached in a thousand self-help books, involves somehow actually reaching that place of safety. The burden-increasing approach, by contrast, involves pointing out that the goal was impossible all along. And when you grasp that you were chasing a mirage, you're disinclined to keep chasing. You get to relax into life as it is. Of course, realizing this doesn't magically make it fine to be overstretched, sick, or struggling financially. But it triggers a kind of inner liberation. You're still in a bad fix, but you're no longer staking everything on achieving an impossible kind of escape from it. Moreover, the result of this shift isn't that you become passively resigned to your fate. Instead, you're more motivated to take whatever useful actions you can. And so Nara recognizes that she is a slave, and that she still has something to offer. Her life still has meaning and purpose. And so Naaman realizes, eventually, that his power and reputation can't beat this disease. And so he sets those aside in search of hope beyond himself. And so Jesus gently reminds his followers that there's still a bunch of unimportant, ill-equipped simpletons, and this is a gift not a curse. The very realm of God is filled with people who are out of their depth, with no choice but to rely on one another and the grace of God to make it through. Our burdens really are too heavy for us to carry. So now what? Berkman again. Whenever all of this pops into my awareness, when I realize I've been trying to convince myself that we really aren't living through dark times, when the fact is that we are, I'm always surprised when what follows isn't an all-consuming sense of horror and despair, but a surge of bracing, ro 
your sleeves up pragmatism. Very well then, so this is how things stand. Time to figure out what, if anything, I can do about it. That's what I see in Nara's story. Rather than denying her vulnerability, rather than pining for a fix, she acknowledged her situation. And in that, she also recognized that her faith had not been shattered because of what had happened to her. She still had hope. She still trusted. Not in the God who would bring her the life she wanted, but in the God who was still with her, sustaining her in the life she had. And from that place of humility, Nara recognized that what she had found was something worth sharing. One of my favorite books is by Dan Santat, After the Fall, How Humpty Dumpty Got Back Up Again. My name is Humpty Dumpty. This was my favorite spot high up on the wall. I know it's an odd place for an egg to be, but I loved being close to the birds. Then one day I fell. I'm sort of famous for that part. Folks called it the Great Fall, which sounds a little grand. It was just an accident, but it changed my life. Fortunately, all the king's men managed to put me back together. Well, most of me. There were some parts that couldn't be healed with bandages and glue. After that day, I became afraid of heights. I was so scared that it kept me from enjoying some of my favorite things. I walked past the wall every day and would think about climbing that ladder again. I really missed the birds and being high above the city, but I could never do it because I knew that accidents can happen. I eventually settled for watching the birds from the ground. It wasn't the same, but it was better than nothing. Then one day an idea flew by. Making planes was harder than I thought. It was easy to get cuts and scratches, but day after day I kept trying and trying until I got it just right. My plane was perfect, and it flew like nothing could stop it. I hadn't felt that happy in a long time. It wasn't the same as being up in the sky with the birds, but it was close enough. Unfortunately, accidents happen. They always do. I almost walked away again. But then I thought about all the time I'd spent working on my plane and all the other things I'd missed. I decided I was going to climb that wall. But the higher I got, the more nervous I felt. I didn't want to admit it. I was terrified. I didn't look up. I didn't look down. I just kept climbing one step at a time until I was no longer afraid. Maybe now you won't think of me as that egg who was famous for falling. Hopefully, you'll remember me as the egg who got back up and learned how to fly. This is faith, my friends, not finding a cure, not a return to the way things were or the way we'd like them to be, 
but the gentle humility of recognizing where we are, who we truly are, and finding the courage to take the next step towards wholeness. This is the kingdom of God.